you have a tradition together that we're going to stand and read the word together. We believe as followers of Jesus that there's power just simply in this word. Um, revival broke out among God's people in the Old Testament when the prophets recovered the word and just read the word. People were turned back to God. And we believe that God's word holds power just by reading it together. So we're going to read together John 15, verses 1 to 11. The words will be on the screen for us, and we can read them aloud together with confidence, knowing that as we're reading this, these are not just words on a screen, words on a page. These are words from the one who made us as he interacts with us today. So read with me. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it may be more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I spoke to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One other thing just to mention again, I don't come proclaiming a winner's script. I come proclaiming one who's in process like you. And so a key component to my testimony that Edwin didn't mention graciously was the church that I came to take over in 2013, I shuttered. We shut it down. So I, I, I know what it's like to fail. I know what it's like to struggle. Um, my salary as a pastor for a short time in my life was selling off all of the equipment that the church had um, so that I could make rent. Um, so I understand what it's like to be in want and in need. Um, and I don't come proclaiming one who has succeeded, but one who continues to wrestle and one who continues to, to trust in Jesus in the midst of the life he's inviting me to live. But I say that also because when you think about your life and you think about the opportunities that God's put in front of you, and you think about how we live in a city where the winner's script pervades, billboards and stories and music and movies proclaim the winner's script. If you want to be somebody, you have to have done something. You have to have accomplished something. You need to have been somewhere. You have to have known someone. But the beautiful thing is, if you think about history, is that most major social change happens through people that most would consider insignificant. 
Most major social changes take place through people that most in society would consider insignificant. And I'm reminded of this last year, my daughter, who's now in third grade and second grade, and I'm just incredibly grateful as a Canadian now coming down to the U.S. to hear about the rich history of the U.S., that God has raised up people that are considered by most to be insignificant to do amazing things. Take, for, take for instance, the story of Ruby Bridges. Some of you know the story of Ruby Bridges. My daughter comes home. She's in a secular private school. By God's grace, my dad is bankrolling that, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. But he, she comes home to tell me the story of Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges, six years old, picked by the government to help break down social and racial inequalities in schools in the South. Six years old. Some of you will know the stories, having read or been live long enough to remember what that was like for a little girl, six years old, being spit on on her way to school. Being escorted by police into the school and most teachers not wanting anything to do with her. In fact, only a few teachers actually giving her any time of day until it was forced upon them to take an interest and involvement in her education. A six-year-old, though, was used by God to lead to massive change in the education system in the South. But how? How is this happening? Well, this was in the midst of much struggle. She was escorted by her mother and U.S. Marshals due to violent mobs. But in the midst of these unimaginable difficult days, one biographer recounts this little story about Ruby and her mom. Usually, Ruby prayed in the car on the way to school. But that day, she had forgotten until she was in the middle of the crowd. Her mother had taught her that every time she felt afraid, she should pray. With childlike obedience, when Ruby felt afraid that morning, she stopped right where she was, and she said a prayer. Dr. Coles was amazed that Ruby would pray for people who were so hateful to her. He asked her, Ruby, you pray for these people there? Oh, yes. Why do you do that? Because they need praying for, Ruby replied. Ruby, why do you think they need you to pray for them? Because I should. Ruby's mother heard this exchange and explained, we tell Ruby that it's important that you pray for the people. Dr. Coles asked Ruby what, what she prayed. Ruby answered, I pray for me that I'd be strong and not afraid. I pray for my enemies that God would forgive them. Jesus prayed that on the cross, she told Coles as if that settled the matter. Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That's a six-year-old describing that to a, t to a doctor who's helping her understand the difficulties she's facing. <clears throat> but most of us, if we're honest, if we think about our life and we think about moments like Ruby Bridges' experience, we think, I, I long to live a life of significance. I long to live for a life that is better than what I'm experiencing. I long to live to be part of something bigger, to be part of a social change, to, to help make my city, my neighborhood, my school, my workplace a better place. But if we're honest, we find ourselves more often in a place of frustration. 
we find ourselves in a place of frustration because we can't even change ourselves, let alone change the experiences around us, change the people and the situations around us. And so instead of finding ourselves in this place of joy and anticipation of the life that we're called to live and the experience of what it means to be part of something bigger, to live a life of, of purpose and of value and of meaning, we find ourselves living in a place of frustration. We struggle. We're afraid. We shrink back. Because we're wondering, how can I live in such a way that I can be and make a difference when I can't even get a hold of my own life? Well, God, in His grace, has given us some words to speak into that experience. And we're going to contrast, if we've read with us already, John chapter 15. And this is one of the primary texts that I say is what we as Christians have to keep in front of us in our Christian experience at all times. Because the temptation is going to be to fall into, instead of living what God is inviting us to consider, a fruitful life, we fall into a frustrated life. Instead of falling in, instead of enjoying the fruitful life that God has made us to walk in and live in, we settle for or fall back into experiencing a frustrated life. And so today we're going to contrast what it looks like between experiencing the fruitful life that God is inviting us to enjoy and the frustrated life that we often fall into. And the ways in which from God's word we're going to see how we can learn to move into experiencing what it means to enjoy the fruitful life. And this takes place first in two ways. First, the contrast. A frustrated life often learns or settles for escaping pain. Escaping pain. You see, we are living in a culture where we don't want to deal with adversity. We don't want to walk through trouble. We want to escape trouble. When trouble comes upon us, we want to run away from it. We either medicate, we buy ourselves out of the problem, we run from the problem. We don't want to deal with the struggles that exist in our life. Now, I want us to understand that those struggles fall into a few categories. Some of these struggles are things we have not chosen. We live in a society that is broken. We live amongst systems that are broken. We live amongst people that are broken. We live in a world that is broken. And so some of the frustrations and the limitations and the struggles and the trials that we experience are as a result of things that are happening to us. Not things that we've chosen. Not things that we've, by our own, stepped into. They have happened to us. Homelessness comes upon us because of unjust systems in some situations. Situations in education, situations in our work, situations come upon us, and they're not things that we have on our own put ourselves into. They have come upon us. But instead of accepting them, instead of learning from them, we try and run from those things. And this is where substance abuse, this is where all sorts of problems with sexual Uh, sin comes into place because instead of trying to deal with the sin we try and medicate our souls with the pain that we're experiencing with something other than God we think that the pain I'm experiencing can be alleviated by running from it or by taking on something else 
And this is where the problem of this lifestyle ensues. Escaping pain only reminds us that we can never run really from it. Because the problem in your relationship, the problem in your work, the problem with your financial situation won't go away by running from it. It won't go away by medicating it. We have to deal with it. Secondly, though, we have to recognize that some of the situations, the pain that we bring, or we bring upon ourselves, we live to excess in eating. We live to excess in, in sexual desires. We live to excess in all these other things that we think will bring us hope and happiness. And it's just this perpetuating problem of we think more will, take, will, will bring us happiness and le it less and less makes us happy. I liken this to the, the human appetite versus the spiritual appetite. It's like when you have a big steak dinner and you think, I could never eat any more food ever, if you've ever had one of those meals. Like you have that pasta dinner that sits in your stomach and you feel like, I could not even eat one more bite. You wake up the next morning and what happens often? You're starving. And why that is, is because your stomach has grown and your appetite now is larger. You want to take on more food. And it's like that with all the other pursuits in our life. We try and fill ourselves with all these other things. It expands our stomachs, but the problem is we end up more and more hungry. Wow. And so the problem then ensues with guilt. Because we, th we think we know, but we should know better. We try and escape this pain by taking on all these things, by taking in all these things, and we think we should know better, and we think this is the last time. I'm not going to take on this anymore. I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to do this again, and guilt ensues. Instead of escaping the pain, we try and medicate the pain. We numb the pain. But escaping and numbing the pain just inevitably leads to more frustration. It leads to guilt. It leads to dissatisfaction. The things that we're running after, the things that we're settling for, will never provide escape. They'll never provide happiness. They'll never settle the issue. And so we live a frustrated life by trying to run from the pain, by trying to escape the pain, by trying to numb the pain. But Jesus offers us something different to consider. Again, if you have a Bible or you've, you read earlier, it says this, he says, I am the true vine, my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. And so the two things we have to remember is this. Instead of living a frustrated life that seeks to escape or numb the pain, we learn to accept the pain. Now this is a hard thing for us, because pain is hard. But pain in the human experience is necessary for us to see growth. They see, this is the reality of who we are as stubborn human beings. Pain, if we learn from it, will lead to the most growth. And God tells us this in two ways. First, there's the pruning. There's the lesser to the greater. There's the first, the pruning. There's some things in our life that God has to cut out to make us more fruitful. And he does this because he loves us. Now some of these, again, I want to make sure we understand, some of these are good things, but we're doing too much. Or too much of it. We have to recognize that there's things that we're doing in our life that is, they are preventing us from being fruitful. Good things that we're doing too much that are preventing us from being fruitful. You're working too 
much. You're exercising too much. You're eating too much. I mean, good things. Exercise is a good thing. Work is a good thing. But when we do those things too much, they prevent us from being fruitful in the ways that God wants us to be fruitful. And so God has to cut some things away. He has to take some things away from us. Now, for you and for me, when we hear this idea of God cutting things away, taking things away, this can be a very difficult thing for us. But again, this text reminds us that all of this is rooted in love. A number of times, Jesus is reminding us that it's rooted in love. And how is it rooted in love? Jesus understands what it means to suffer. So lest we think we don't understand that God is distant, that he's got this sort of marionette display of God, that he's holding things over us, that he's taking things from us, Jesus steps into our messiness to remind us that he understands what it's like to experience pain. He understands what it's like to have things taken from him. Now imagine this for a moment. The one who made all things, Jesus, Colossians tells us by the, he was present and active in the beginning with his Father in the created order and watching everything unfold, and yet things are being taken away from him. Jesus understands suffering. He understands what it means to be pruned. His family stepped away from him. His friends stepped away from him. He understands what it means to be pruned. We need to recognize that God wants to bring this pruning in our life for our good. People are going to come into our life and be a means of pruning. People are going to see things in our life that are not producing fruit, and they're going to tell us that graciously and helpfully, but maybe sometimes not even graciously and helpfully. doesn't mean it's not true. God wants us to know that in these moments, He's using these people in our life to help us see the things that aren't bearing fruit in our life. And if we don't accept those things, we're missing the opportunities to be more fruitful and we're settling for the frustrated instead of the fruitful life. So we have to recognize that God brings pruning. There are good things and that there, we know there are some other things. And you, you, you don't need me to tell you about those things. There are things in your life you know that are bearing no fruit in your life that God's trying to cut away. That relationship that you're in that constantly leads you into places and with people and into experiences that you know are not good, God's trying to cut that away. That substance that you think is going to provide the happiness and the hope and the strength that's going to make you feel like a better person for those few moments, God is trying to cut it away. That TV episode, that internet site, all those things that you think are going to bring that happiness in that moment just fades and it withers and it leads to nowhere good. And God is trying to cut it away because he loves you and has a better plan for you. So this is a pruning. But then there's this other one that we have to understand. In the realm of the context, verse 2, it says, He cuts off every branch. Now this is why we have to look, look down if you have a Bible. In me. He cuts off every branch in me. Now, we often think of the distinction in this text between the person who's being pruned and the person who's being cut off. But the distinction in this text in verse 2 is the reminder that this in me is not the person that God's saying, I'm done with you. Because that's not God's heart. God's heart is not, I'm done with you. 
But God's heart is in moments when we are living a life that is not bearing fruit, where we're living a life full of things that are destructive, that are leading us away from him, sometimes, to put it, to put it in his layman's terms, he's going to put us on the bench. He's got to put us on the bench. And that's not a pleasant feeling. If you've played sports before, and you are the starter, and now you are the bench warmer, that's not a pleasant feeling. And other people are going to start thinking, well, what did that guy do to end up on the bench? What did that person do to end up on the bench? And here's what the reminder. God loves you too much to be a star in your own game. He loves you too much. He loves you too much to be a star in your own game. He is going to sometimes make you sit down because he's got a bigger and a better purpose than just your game. It's his game. It's his game. Now remember, it's in him. So this is not saying, God, I'm, God's saying, I'm done with you. God's saying, I want you to sit down so you can see me more clearly and then step back into the game and be more fruitful. But sometimes we need to sit down. And so some of you, you are running hard, but you're running too hard. You are taking on stuff, but you're taking on too much. And your relationships and your life and your soul are taking a beating. And God is saying, it's time to sit down. Because your soul is more important than your tasks. Your soul is more important than your duties. Your family is more important than your money. And so we need to think about, God is asking us to sit down in these moments because He loves us. The coach who's sitting you down on the basketball court is sitting you down for other reasons. Maybe good reasons, maybe not good reasons. God is always sitting you down because he loves you. Because he doesn't want you to live a frustrated life. And so these prunings and these things take place in our life because God wants to remind us that he loves us and he wants us to live a fruitful life. And so how do we know? How do we know the distinctions? Here's some ways for us to understand about how we're living the fruitful life versus the frustrated life. Do I find myself constantly angry? Do the littlest things set me off? Do I find myself falling into these same traps of thinking that this one thing is going to provide the happiness and then find myself just riddled with guilt again and again and again? You might be living the frustrated life, settling for things that God's trying to cut away. How might God be trying to prune you? What's he trying to adjust in you? Is he asking you to stop something? Is he bringing people into your life? Is the word constantly pointing the finger at this one area? Is the spirit prompting you and, and convicting you in this one area? And God just saying, put it down. Put it down. Go to your counselors. Go to the people around you and help you to see these things. Because God loves you and wants you to live a fruitful life, not a frustrated life. And this sounds scary, but think about your, think about your heart right now. And where we're going is what, what the result of this is, is not frustration, it's joy. I mean, would people say that you live a life of joy? Would you say you live a life of joy? One of those ways to help us see we're living a frustrated versus a fruitful life. The second, the battle between the hustle and the rest. Hustle and rest. Now, we understand. I mean, the hustle. You understand. You live in New York City. The hustle. 
You've got to be somewhere. You've got to do something. You've got to know someone. You've got to do, show something to make sure that you're staying ahead in, in this city. If you're not constantly working or thinking about working, then you are nobody and you're not getting anywhere. Someone is going to step on your neck to get ahead in this city. You know this. You know this. When you wake up in the morning, you're thinking about the hustle. I, I have friends, I know, working two and three jobs, trying to just make ends meet to make sure that that rent check is not bouncing. You understand the hustle. But see, here's the problem. We live with the sense of the hustle, not just with our responsibilities, but with our relationship with God. We think that I have to maintain all this stuff in my relationship with God so that He loves me. I have to keep reading my Bible so that God keeps loving me. I need to keep praying so God keeps loving me. I need to keep coming to church and keep going to programs and keep being in Bible study so God keeps loving me. I need to keep hustling so that I can keep my good standing with God. We fall into the trap of thinking that the hustle should reflect our relationship with God. And God says, that's not the way I work. That's not the way I work. It says we need to remain in Him. The word means abide. It means to be confident, assurance, and resting in. An assurance, my soul finds rest in God. Now, this idea of rest doesn't mean we stop doing things. It doesn't mean we just sit down and let God do what He's going to do. This means learning to live out of a relationship with God, meaning that I learn to know that I'm loved not because of what I do, but because of what He's done. See, we fall into this trap of thinking the hustle is about God saying, here's the list of things you need to do, and if you don't keep your end of the bargain, then I won't keep loving you. And Jesus says from the cross, in the worst moment in human history, reminds us of the clearest, most beautiful statement in all of humanity, it is finished. And what he's saying in that moment is that I don't need to do anything to keep God's love for me. What I need to do is keep trusting Jesus and all that he did. When Jesus is saying he's finished, I accomplished everything in life that ever needed to happen for you to receive love and acceptance and forgiveness and welcome from God. Everything. There is not one thing that I need to add to the list. God has sent His Son so that everything that was required of me, Jesus did for me. The hustle. I need to recognize that I don't want to let the hustle define my relationship with God because that's a frustration. Because then I think, oh, I didn't read my Bible today. God must not love me as much. I didn't go to church this week. Oh, God doesn't love me very much. Now again, all those things good and wise and helpful, yes, and we're going to get to that in a few minutes. But we have to recognize, if I think that it's about the hustle in my relationship with God, I'm going to inevitably live frustrated because here's the reality. There's someone else who's reading their Bible more than you. There's someone else who's praying more than you. And here's, yeah, again, so the, and here's the other layer to the hustle. The problem is not just that we think about, it's my relationship with God and all the things I need to do. I start looking down on others. Mm. You're not reading your Bible? Mm. You were not prayer meeting this week? Mm. Mm. You didn't come to the, the pantry this week? Mm. You know? James study, only 26 of you. Where are the rest of y'all? 
You know? You know what I'm saying? You understand, right? But we start looking down on others. We start looking down on others. We think that our spiritual life is about what we do, and we start looking down on others. I don't necessarily love the song. My girls love dancing to it, but I just, I, all the time, I push my girls on the swing, or I'm playing with them in the playground, and, and um, I always forget his name, uh, but the uh, Nene, the Nene song. What's he, what am I, right? <laughs> right? And I, because every time my girl's saying, watch me, watch me, watch me, watch me, right? And that's all I'm thinking about. That's all I'm thinking about. But that's the life we start to follow if, we don't, if we're not careful. It's the, I'm, I'm living the spiritual life. Watch me, watch me, watch me, watch me, right? You understand? You understand? No one understands? You understand, right? You understand? <laughs> but here's the problem. We're never going to get enough adulation. We're never going to get enough congratulations. When you're doing something at the food pantry and no one notices, are you still happy in Jesus? See, if we think that life is about the hustle and about us doing things and staying ahead of the game and doing more, and we think, I'm doing this and no one's thanking me. Where's my thanks? Consider Jesus. Jesus did a whole bunch of stuff, and instead of thanking him, they attack him. Instead of thanking them, they put him on a cross. I came to show you God's love and the thanks that he gets as he hangs on a cross for them. So we have to recognize that the hustle game falls into our spiritual life. If we're not careful, the way in which we think about how we need to make it in this world falls into how we think about we need to make it with God. And God's saying, abide in me. Rest in me. Because the reality is, as, as it says, as Jesus says in this, if, you're, if apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul tells us this, if I can do all this service, I can do all these great things, I can read my Bible, I can pray, and I can do all these great things better than anyone, but if I have love, they are useless. They are useless. They are empty and will produce no lasting fruit. The hustle game falls into our spiritual life. When we think that it's about us, it's on us to keep our life in God good. We need to find rest in God. Remembering that I'm loved. Look at me again. Look at the words. Verse 3. You are already clean because of the word I spoke to you. I'm not loved by God because of what I do. I'm loved by remembering what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Everything. He did it all. I need not do anything to keep myself in the love of God other than just going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you did it all for me. The word I spoke to you, it is finished. I love you. But that's accepting. That's saying, I can't do it. It's accepting. There's, coming, there's a repentance, an admission that says, I can't make myself right with God. I can't do enough for God to love me. I have to trust in Jesus. I have to admit that I'm not all that and put my life in his hands. The fruitful life finds rest in Jesus. Resting that I'm not doing so that others... See, again, as, as Edwin said, and some others have said already this morning, th this idea of not, there's no wasted moments with God. Some of you 
are living a life of, of secret service that most people don't see. They're, you're doing things that no one will ever notice and no one will ever think. No one will ever... You, you won't be the Ruby Bridges that people write histor- history books about. But you know what? There is no wasted moment in God's economy. He sees it all. He glories in it all. When you do those little things that no one notices, God sees it and is delighted. It brings him honor and glory and makes him happy. So we don't need to hustle to make people like us more. We don't need to hustle to make people accept us. We don't need to hustle to keep our percep- people's perception of us good. See, the hustle game, again, you see another level. It's like, thing, I need to keep people's thoughts of me good. I need to do enough so they think I'm a good person. God already thinks you're a good person in Jesus. He has redeemed you and forgiven you and accepted you and welcomed you and loved you because you trust in Jesus. So are we hustling or resting today? Are we trying to figure out life on our own? Has the hustle game sort of seeped into our spiritual life? Am Am I so busy hustling that I've lost sight of Jesus? Am I so busy doing the Christian life that I've lost sight of Jesus? Doing, reading my Bible so I can get it done. Praying so I can get it done. Being at church so I can say I was there and miss Jesus. Jesus says, these things, this prayer, this, what they're ultimately about is spending time with me. Spending time with me. This is not just about gaining information passing a test, keeping myself in good sight with others. No, this is about spending time with Jesus, getting to know him, resting in him. But here's the beautiful thing. When we think about this life of influence, this life of purpose, this life of meaning, again, what Jesus is describing here, verse 1, I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. He's describing a garden. So when we think about this idea of what it means to be, have a fruitful life, the result of this is a harvest of joy. A harvest of joy. And why I want us to understand it being a harvest of joy is because our growth, my growth, your growth, is never just for myself. Is never just for myself. The harvest of joy, meaning, again, using an illustration we can all understand, does an apple grow on a tree for itself to enjoy? It doesn't have teeth. It doesn't have a mouth. It grows on a tree to display its maker's beauty and grows then to be enjoyed by someone else. So the fruit that God is bearing in you ultimately is meant to give glory to God and be good for others. So when we think about all the ways God wants to grow in us, patience and peace, all the fruits of the Spirit, joy, all those things, ultimately, these are means by which God is going to then flow His love through me to others. See, we settle for just thinking it's about me, and that's where the trap falls again. The trap falls again with the hustle game and this idea of the spiritual life. is like, this is all about me. God, give me what I want for me. And God's saying, Jesus saying, Verse 8, this is for my Father's glory. The fruit I'm bearing in you is ultimately not for you. It's for the Father 
and for others. Now, we receive residual joy because we understand that I am learning to live the life that I'm meant to live, and I, and I don't need to live frustrated like trying to hit a, a square peg into a circle hole. And that's the frustrated life. I'm trying to do the things that will never bring joy. I use this example all the time with my kids. It's like if, if you've ever been uh, camping before, or if you've ever been by an open fire and you wanted to roast marshmallows, okay? And some of you don't like marshmallows. My, one of my daughters despises them. She hates getting her hands sticky. But the idea of the marshmallow is you're spending time by the fire, and the fire warms the marshmallow, turns it brown. Some of you are starting to get hungry thinking about marshmallows. And you think about this is the beauty. But then you take it home. You're like, I don't have an open fire. I don't, can't find one. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put some of those marshmallows in a toaster and, and get them nice and moist. <laughs> you, you understand that's not going to work because it's going to make a gooey mess. It might start a fire. You might electrocute yourself because you'll forget to unplug the toaster before you start messing around with the, the marshmallow inside the toaster. You recognize it's making a mess. This is what we're doing with our life when we live outside of its design. We're doing things we were never intended to do. We're a marshmallow inside a toaster. And God says the joy that you'll experience when you submit yourself to my design and to my purposes is to know you're living the way you were made to live. This is why, again, that I said rest is not about not doing anything. Jesus tells us at the end, this is where that idea of the harvest of joy, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you remain in my love. The commandments then become not a burden for me to keep doing things that I think I ought to be doing, but a joy because I recognize these are the things I'm made to do because God loves me and has a good purpose for my life, and these things not only bring me joy, but bring others joy. When I make the Lord my God, when I love Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself, I don't need to make sure that others love me as much as I love me because God loves me. I don't need to worry about what others think of me when I make a fool of myself, when I fail and I try to serve and do something silly and foolish, but because I want to love and serve and put myself out there. I don't need to worry about failure. You know why? Because I don't need to worry about how people perceive me because God loves me. He accepts me. Failure is not the grid by which God evaluates me. His Jesus love is the evaluation grid. I don't need to be afraid to fail. I don't need to worry about when I struggle, when I fall off the wagon, when I lose my job. You know why? Because Jesus loves me. If I remain in his love, I don't need to work at trying to make other people think of me a certain way. You see, that's, such, that's paralyzing. The fear of man and this notion that I need to live a certain way so that society will accept and welcome me and accept me and I'll fall into these moments. Jesus loves me. And he accepts me because I trust not in what I do, but in what he's done. And it's a harvest of joy. A happiness is not defined by circumstances or by possessions, but in the reality of being accepted by God. We find joy in obedience because we aren't doing to gain acceptance, but because we see the fruit it bears in others, the way we forgive and extend kindness and patience and the blessing it brings others. We find joy in serving and trying and even failing, not worrying because our performance is not what saves us. We find joy in trials 
We can learn to find joy in trials because we know there's a purpose behind them. And there's a God behind them that loves us. That's not saying in these moments when trial sets in, he's not saying I don't love you. He's saying I do love you and have better and bigger and more glorious purposes for your life than what you're settling for right now. But we're stubborn. And sometimes he needs to prune. And sometimes he needs to sit us down. But he does it because he loves us. Because he loves us. He says, rest in me. Hear my words. Trust my love. Trust my promises. Stop making a mess of your life by trying to live a life for your own glory and your own purposes. Your own desires. Turn to me. Trust in me. Rest in me. Look to me. But you see, entrance into this joy and fruitful life comes to learn, comes as we learn <clears throat> that we can't change ourselves. We can't change ourselves. We can't work hard enough to get where we want to go. Some, some of you know this. You, you know, and this is why, again, the joy sets in. I don't need to think. I, some of you are looking for jobs right now, Right? And you think, I just can't break through because I don't know the right person. I don't have the right skills. I don't have the right clothing. But it's not just about that. There's a God behind that whole narrative, that whole story. And we can trust that if this is what God wants, He will make it happen. I don't need to fear that I show up at a... At a at a, at a job interview and don't have the right clothes. Now, I mean, I'm not saying show up in a jeans and t-shirt. I'm not saying up, show up in, you know, whatever. But you, you recognize this is not about, ultimately, just about that moment. It's about God. We, we recognize we can't fix ourselves. We recognize we need God's help. We recognize that our life is in His hands. Putting our, life is not about putting ourselves at the center of our existence, but putting God at the center and trusting that He has good plans for me. That's what this is about. And so we recognize again, are we living a frustrated life? This life where we think it's all about the hustle? I need to do more, and be more, and think more, and try more, and then maybe I'll get somewhere. Or am I resting in God, saying, God, you are enough? Again, another level. Jesus says... I give you myself. Remain in me and I in you. You're going into this day. You're going into this interview. You're going into your experience. You're going into your home. You're going to your workplace. Not wor- maybe worrying, do I have what it takes? You have Jesus. You have Jesus. The frustrated life is thinking that it's all on me. It's all on me. And Jesus is saying, no, no. It's on me. It's in me and with me and to me, and for me. So I'm living this frustrated life of just saying, i, I got to work harder, i got to be more, i got to try more. Or am I saying, Jesus, help me. Jesus, I need you. I'm turning to you. I'm trusting in you. Am I living this frustrated life of thinking, I want to escape the pain, dismiss the pain, run from the pain? Or am I going to accept that life is hard and God is using these difficulties in my life to teach me what I can't do, but what He can do. What I am not, but what He is. What, he, what I think I can do versus, versus what He promises He will do. 
Jesus is inviting us to a fruitful life. A fruitful life where the overflow is then the joy because I know that God is with me. God is for me. And so I'm not sure how the response time looks like in this church. I'm not sure all that. But what I would have you do is consider this today. What, what kind of life do you want to live? Do you want to live a life that's frustrated? Where others around you are kind of just annoyed by you? Because you think that your life is all about you? That you think that everything has to revolve around your desires, your purposes, your dreams, your goals, your tasks? You know, watch me. You know, is that what our life is about? <laughs> just, I just, yeah. It's, or is my life about resting? Jesus, you are enough. Jesus doesn't invite us all to be the same person. He gives us each different gifts and different talents, different histories, different struggles. And Jesus is using all of those things to accomplish His good purposes in your life and to accomplish His glory in the city. You might think of your history as a problem. You might think of your history as a hindrance. God is saying, I'm using that for a purpose. Your testimony and your history, God is using that. And I can live frustrated saying, I wish I had not done this. I wish my life were different. I wish I had these talents. I wish I had these abilities. I wish I lived in this place. I wish I had this. I wish I had that. Or I could say, Jesus, I accept. This is the way you made me. And I trust you. And I love you. And I trust your pruning. And I trust that you're, gonna, you're going to change me in ways that you think I need to change. And then you're going to use those things for your glory and for my good and for the good of others. So I'd just like us to close our eyes for a minute. I'm just going to pray for us, and I just want you, just in the stillness, just to think about the life that you want to live and the life that Jesus is offering. The life that you're living now and the life that Jesus is offering. Jesus, we, we, we are grateful today that you're not passive and indifferent to what's happening in our life right now. You're not in some other place just watching indifferently to the struggles we face, you are intimately acquainted with them and using them for a bigger purpose than we can even see right now. Jesus, I pray that you'd help us to repent in the areas you want us to repent, to accept the pruning. Some of that pruning requires first putting our life before you, saying, I can't fix myself. I need you to change me. Jesus, I pray that you would, by your spirit, through your word, prompt and, and encourage and help us to see the areas you want to prune, help us to see the areas, things you want us to put down, help us to see where you want us to rest, and that, Jesus, a harvest of joy would come out of this life, and a harvest of joy would come out of this congregation, because we'd be living a life knowing that we're accepted and welcomed, we are loved by you, we are gifted through you, and you want to use us for bigger purposes than we can even imagine right now. We thank you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.